This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back on Wednesday. Another restriction is being lifted in breaking news. The interprovincial border restriction uh, between Ontario and Manitoba and Ontario and Quebec is being lifted as of Wednesday morning at 12.01. It was in effect until tomorrow, so the Ford government has decided to lift the interprovincial border restrictions with Quebec and Manitoba, another sign that the pandemic situation is improving. Uh, One of these signs has been the past Patios that have been open in Ontario for three days now as part of the Step 1 reopening. Uh, Today, well, actually, it's improving very nicely, but much earlier we had a lot of rain. So outdoor dining, um, not great for earlier today, but on the weekend, wow, was that perfect patio weather. How was your experience and how was your attitude? Were you more understanding as staff? was trying to get acclimatized to getting back to serving. Did you tip more than usual, or are you still avoiding any kind of gathering scenario uh, on the patios for now? Numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. To get the perspective of the restaurateur, we're joined by Damon Bodnar, owner of Hemingway's in Yorkville, and Chef Brooke Cavanaugh owner of Season 6 Restaurant. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Jane. How are you? Oh, You're great. Ready. How's it going? Uh, and much better now that the patios are open. It is uh, it is a pastime here in Toronto, to be sure. Damon, you opened at the stroke uh, of midnight, first thing on Friday. How was that? Yeah, we opened 12.01 Friday morning. Uh, it, was, it was fantastic. It was it was a good little, um, a, a good little couple of hours to be open, uh, leading into it into a crazy uh, high demand weekend. So we were, uh, patrons were happy. Staff were, were very happy. I think they were smiling behind their masks. Um, but it, it, was, it was good to be back. So that was the overall atmosphere was just jubilation on both sides. Yeah, you know what? Like there, there, was, there was definitely a little bit of rust. Uh, and, uh, you know, starting off a, 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 a beautiful Friday was, was, was a challenge. But the public health uh, guidelines and, and the protocols that we have in place are very similar to that they were at the end of last summer. So there was, there was a real comfort level for our staff and a real comfort level for our patrons. So, uh, you know, it, it went really well. And Brooke, what about you and season six? Well, my experience was maybe a bit unique. Uh, we actually just opened this location a month ago. Uh, we opened our first location on April 1st of last year, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And we had opened in a little 250-square-foot basement at Dundas and Ossington. Uh, We opened a restaurant that was kind of ideally suited for the pandemic. It was a little takeaway and delivery place that we had conceived of prior to the pandemic. Um, Not necessarily because we didn't have ambitions to open a proper restaurant with seating one day, but just that's the size of a restaurant my wife and I could afford to Mm -hmm. open. So Mm -hmm. 
we ended up getting really lucky and uh, we did quite well during the first year and were able to take a, a much larger space with a liquor license and a patio. Uh, so we weren't just opening for the, for the first time in a year. We were opening the first time ever for the two of us, uh, a restaurant with seating and uh, with service. Luckily, we, we both worked for a long time in the industry, so we know what we're doing and uh, we ended up having a great day. It started a, a little rocky, though. Uh, I was up at 7 a.m. to get to the Home Depot to buy the things we needed to finish off the bathrooms that we hadn't right. uh, hadn't finished renovating. Right. Uh, and when we were told that we'd be able to open on Friday instead of Monday, we, we were in a rush to, to get things sorted. So I was buying you know, a paper towel rack and toilet paper holders and mirrors and sconces for the walls and the bathrooms and installing those at the same time as setting up the patio for the first time and preparing for our first day of very busy, uh, very busy day. We went from doing, uh, you know, maybe $1,500 a day in sales uh, to, you know, four times that amount on our first day. So it, uh, it, was, it was not easy. I, I was running around like a, like a madman for 17 hours. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about that in terms of recouping losses. Uh, Damon, mm-hmm. what's how, I mean, Hemingway's is long established in Yorkville. Um, you know, is there any fear or concern that uh, your establishment or others aren't going to make it now as a result of not being able to serve in person for so long? So, you know, I, I think there, there has been some real challenges and I think all, all restaurants have, have been through a real tough time over the last 14 months with different restrictions and different closing. Uh, some of the subsidies uh, that if businesses were eligible for them, they definitely help. Um, but you, you kind of you can't look back. You've got to look forward. Like I, I don't, we're not going to make up the losses that we've had over the last 14 months. Our staff aren't going to. Um, their opportunities to earn are, are are forward now. So you know we're, we're taking what we've been been, been granted. For, for for operating uh, um, hours and so forth now, and we we're just looking forward. I, I think if we focus too much on trying to recoup, we won't focus what what's in front of us, which is our, our customer, and what's ahead of us. And that's uh, hopefully a long, beautiful summer. And Brooke, it looks to me from the story you've told, you and your wife, uh, you have an optimistic future. Oh, absolutely. We have uh, a lot of ambitions. We're opening a second restaurant in our old location. Um, we, we're definitely trying to expand, uh, but the challenge right now is certainly staff, uh, as has been widely reported with everyone launching back into service at the same time. It's been really tricky. A lot of the people that were working in the industry prior to the pandemic have moved on. It wasn't a luxurious industry to work in at the beginning before the pandemic. So, you know, people that were maybe on the fence about whether they wanted to stick it out have found work in other industries. You know, the film industry has been doing remarkably. Uh, they were never really shut down by any great extent during the pandemic. So a lot of people have moved over and have become, you know, workers in that, in that industry. So certainly staffing is our biggest challenge right now. Um, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of other restaurateurs would, would agree with that. Um, yeah. What What about uh, Damon? What about the professional uh, serving staff um, that you know have made have have made a profession uh, of serving tables and and are clearly above and beyond uh, those who are just starting out in the business? H- how have they made out? And, and that's that. That's exactly right. Um, some of the professionals that 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 make a career out of hospitality, and there are a lot of us. Uh, it's been a really challenging time, um, but. Um, we, we've been fortunate. We've had our team, um, the majority of our team come back 
Um, the staffing is a challenge. Like you, you are going into a really busy season, so everyone's trying to not just reopen but ramp up to summer volumes at the same time. Um, but I do think that um, people will start to come back to hospitality, um, and uh, you know your seasoned veterans for sure. They're they're, they're here. They're, they're ready to go. Our kitchen, uh, as an example, um, they've all they've all stuck around. They're ready to. Um, um, they, they launched back with us day one. Um, and I think there's the summer students and the uh, and some of the international students and and some of the um, um, part timers in the summer. I think you know now that we're, we're a few days into it, I, I really hope that they'll um, that they'll start to um, come back. Well, let's talk about the clientele. I know my husband and I, we went out on Friday night with a couple friend of friends of ours, and we were just so happy to be on a patio. And the atmosphere, as we were saying in the beginning, was really joyful. And they didn't have certain drinks, and, you know, the food wasn't as hot as it could have been. But it almost didn't seem to matter, Brooke, because, you know, it's it's such... It's such a beloved activity for people in the GTA to go to a patio. It just was. It just felt good to be back. Oh yeah, you could see that on everyone's faces. Uh, you could tell that people were really feeling for the people in hospitality. Uh, there was a real generosity that we experienced from everyone on the patio that day. Well, that's nice to hear. What about you, Damon? Same customers were were accommodating and and uh, respect. Uh, we was happy to be out. We're, we're happy to be in safe, comfortable environment. Um, and uh, yeah, no, there was, there was there was definitely a lot of joy. And and, and, and man, I, I hope that continues throughout the summer. Um, but, but it was fantastic. Yes. Just uh, you know, one more uh, topic uh, before we wrap up the segment here. In terms of the assistance that you've been given by the city of Toronto, by the province of Ontario. Uh, I've heard, you know, we've heard from various business organizations, independent business organizations, that it has not been adequate. Um, Brooke, I'll start with you. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it's it, you can always use more help. Um, and I think squeaky wheel gets the grease. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to just appreciate the what we've got and being able to use these uh, great cap ATO patios is been huge for us. Um, so I'm just counting my blessings right now. Brooke, is that something do you think that would will ultimately revitalize the industry? Is this patio TO program? Well, it certainly has already. It's, yeah. it's a huge boost for a business like us that doesn't have um, a proper patio. Being able to use the street, uh, it's it's massive. That's a it's a huge win for us. And Damon, what what about you uh, in terms of, of the help that the city of Toronto, the province of Ontario, has um, given to restaurateurs? Yeah, so I think that the subsidies that were in place, they definitely kept a lot of businesses afloat. Did they um, remove all losses that, 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 that restaurants and, and hospitality had? No, absolutely not. We ran at a loss. I, I have a place, the gym pub up on St. Clair, a smaller place. We ran at a loss month on month. Did it help? Absolutely. Uh, did it give us an opportunity to, to reopen on opening day? Yes. But are we carrying losses through all of this? Yes, we are. And um, uh, what I do hope for is that these subsidies don't just get cut off now. Like um, we need to, we they, they need to at least run to say September, October, to the end of the, uh, to the start of the beginning of the fall. There's some uncertainty what the fall will bring. Um, so the subsidies are great, but they, they do need to remain in place. 
And and post-pandemic, just one final thought here um, in terms of practices or standards that have had to be implemented uh, during the COVID-19 crisis. Brooke, how how will that the ripple effect of that be once uh, once we're finished with this thing? Well, I think a lot of these practices that are in place are, are you know, it's good hygiene and it's it's good if we can continue with them even you know, beyond the pandemic, uh, you know, whether it's seasonal flu or, or whatnot, just being adamant about, uh, you know, making sure everything's properly sanitized uh, is, is good. Uh, now, in terms of distancing, I, I'm not a doctor and I don't, I would never say that, but I will say that as a restaurateur, I sincerely hope that we'll be able to uh, have as many patrons in as our capacity allows uh, once the pandemic is over. Damon, final thoughts on that post-pandemic life beyond uh, COVID? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think the, uh, the the distancing makes it very difficult for um, for restaurateurs to get uh, uh, their, their liquor license capacity. But you know what? We've, we've probably learned a lot from this. Is um, you know, little things like QR codes and and having online menus. And I, th- I think the uh, the industry as a whole has some things, has some protocols that we've that we've um, put in place um, throughout the pandemic that will we'll, we'll continue on in the future. Well, I hope the sunny weather continues for you both because we all know people uh, go in droves when the weather is good. Uh, thank you both for sharing your stories with us. Thank you. No worries. Good. Damon Bodnar is owner of Hemingway's in Yorkville and Chef Brooke Cavanaugh is the owner of six, Season 6 Restaurant. Season 6 Restaurant. Jane for Libby and coming up next here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, how to improve safety and living situations for Toronto's homeless after three encampment fires over the weekend. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off for a couple of days as she will be back on Wednesday. Fires in homeless encampments continue to be an issue and a safety hazard for those who live in them. This morning, Toronto's Chief Communications Officer Brad Ross posted that Toronto Fire Services dealt with as many as three encampment fires in the city over the last 72 hours. There were no injuries, but this issue hits close to home here at the Zoomerplex since Liberty Village had its very own encampment for quite a lengthy period of time before it was dismantled mantled a number of weeks ago by the city and Toronto police officers. Brad Ross joins us now with an update. Thanks for the time, Brad. Hi, good afternoon, Jane. So what happened over the weekend? Tell us the stories of these fires. Yeah, so unfortunately we had uh, a fire, uh, two fires under the Gardner Expressway, one uh, at, uh, at York and Lakeshore uh, and another uh, near Spadina and Lakeshore. And then uh, one at, at uh, Alexandra Park um, that you just referred to, which uh, unfortunately uh, there are still some structures there. Uh, that happened at about 1 a.m. So thankfully, uh, in all three cases, there were no injuries, but it does continue to speak to the safety concerns, the very real safety concerns that we at the city and at Toronto Fire have about um, uh, about the situation in encampments. Well, and isn't that um, isn't that evidence this dismantling a couple of weeks ago by Toronto Police and the city that maybe this form of dismantling doesn't work? 
Well, I mean, what, what we do and what we have been doing throughout the pandemic is, is making safe indoor space available to people uh, in these encampments. Uh, we have referred more than 1,600 people, in fact, uh, into safe indoor space. But uh, there continue to be people who um, you know, are, are not accepting those offers and, and are staying in these encampments. Uh, we have, uh, in the last, uh, since 2020, in fact, responded to 253 uh, fires in encampments. So uh, we see gasoline cans, we see propane, um, a lot of debris, and so it, it is. It is terribly concerning. And so, uh, yes, we are. Uh, you know, we posted notices, for example, at encampments, indicating that uh, you cannot set up structures in parks, you cannot camp in parks, and you certainly can't have fires uh, in encampments. And so, uh, we continue to work through that. We continue to. Uh, connect with people who are living in these encampments, people who are experiencing homelessness, to refer them to safe inside space where they will have, most importantly, access to a housing worker to to find uh, permanent housing. Um, but uh, and, you know, as 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 uh, as as we go through this uh, that process, um, we we do remain very concerned about uh, about fires in encampments, and and Toronto Fire have removed as you know as i was just referring to propane tanks and gasoline cans to um, not just protect the people who are living in those encampments but our first responders as well uh, and the public uh, in in the vicinity of these encampments i'd like to invite our listeners to get involved in the conversation as well we're talking about toronto's homeless encampments and uh, fires uh, which continue to be prevalent as you've just heard from brad ross at the city of toronto numbers to call 416 416- Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Brad, if we look back, do some reverse engineering on uh, Toronto's homeless situation. How did it get to this point? How did it get to a point where people are setting up, living in parks, feeling that they have no other option? I do totally understand and respect that you are trying to provide other options, but it was a long journey to get here. Well, in one word, Jane, pandemic. Uh, the pandemic uh, created uh, a significant issue, uh, not just for Toronto. Uh, cities around the world uh, have been seeing this. Um, we uh, we moved very, very quickly, though, to uh, expand the shelter system, uh, including 25 temporary shelters to create physical distancing. Uh, hotels, as uh, you, you and your listeners may well be aware, we have a, a number of hotels that we are leasing, providing uh, safe, secure rooms, uh, meals, laundry, um, harm reduction, uh, medical, uh, and, uh, uh, and and housing worker um, uh, access or so services there, um, and uh, and improving the infection prevention and control within within shelters, as well as uh, created an isolation um, hotel for people who are homeless who uh, contract COVID nineteen. So the pandemic um, forced people to not want to come into shelters for fear of contracting COVID, understandably. Um, so we move quickly to um, create a, a space uh, within our shelter system, create spaces within our shelter system that were safe and that are safe. We don't have any uh, outbreaks currently within our shelter system. We continue to vaccinate people uh, who are experiencing homelessness. So we're taking an, we've taken a number of steps since the start of this pandemic to um, to deal with those issues and to encourage people to come inside where it is safer. But at the outset, Jane, uh, really the pandemic mm-hmm. uh, 
has been the issue. There are a number of people uh, who were released from uh, correctional facilities early in the pandemic who, who had no housing plan or anywhere to go. So uh, the city of Toronto um, has uh, the largest and most comprehensive shelter system in the country, uh, does draw people to it as well. Um, and a sense of community in these encampments. We fully understand that, and that's why we're releasing hotel space, for example, downtown, so that they are close to their supports, to their friends, um, to to people uh, who who you know require that uh, th- those kinds of supports. So we're doing everything we possibly can to to ensure that our most vulnerable have a safe space to go. Well, help us understand why an individual would not take the city up on what sounds like a relatively attractive offer versus staying in a park in in, in a lean-to situation. Well, there are, you know, there are as many different reasons as there are people, of course. Um, the, the, some of the things we hear are the supports that I just discussed, you know, the sense of community that they have in encampment. Uh, in an encampment, and uh, some of the barriers, uh, frankly, I mean, there there are some rules that must be followed when you're in a shelter system, including the hotel program, that people uh, don't wish to adhere to. Um, and uh, there are people who, as I said uh, earlier, were, were feeling unsafe about COVID-19, understandably, so uh, we, have, we are doing everything we can to address that, including vaccinating people, not just in the shelter system, but also in encampments. We have mobile teams that have been doing that uh, for the last several weeks. Um, and uh, just, you know, a sense of, I guess, what, what they would describe as, as safe, feeling uh, unsafe in the shelter system for, for a variety of reasons. Shelter system, though, then shelters are temporary uh, emergency solutions to people who are uh, unhoused. And so that's why we provide access to a housing worker uh, so that uh, people who are in the shelter system can then be uh, housed. And we have, in fact, housed more than 5,500 people since the start of the pandemic who were in the shelter system. So um, finding affordable housing for people, uh, finding them uh, you know, supportive housing, uh, helping them get things like identification. These, you know, some mm-hmm. fairly things, some fairly fundamental things that that we, you and I, may take for granted. Uh, people don't have IDs, so so we work with them to 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 obtain those kinds of, uh, uh, you know, basics that we might refer to um, and necessities to to find then housing and uh, income support, whether it's a job or or or, or uh, otherwise. So um, we do quite a bit within the shelter system. Why do some people choose not to come in. I don't know. Mm. Um, as I say, there's, there's, there's myriad reasons, uh, but, uh, but I can tell you that many thousands do, and uh, we continue to refer people inside. People continue to accept our referral. We estimate that uh, perhaps maybe three to 400 people are living outside on any given day. It, it changes uh, daily. It's a very dynamic sort of situation. Uh, there are four key encampments that uh, you know we're aware of that, uh, that that the people are aware of at Trinity Bellwoods, Alexandra Park, Moss Park, and Lamport Stadium, uh, and we see a number of referrals continue to uh, to occur on those sites. Uh, in addition to people who, yes, uh, do refuse to uh, to accept our offers of service. I'm speaking with Brad Ross, Toronto's Chief Communications Officer. How big of an issue is mental health in terms of reaching people who are mentally unhealthy and won't be receptive to any kind of assistance? So, you know, that's why we have uh, uh, streets to homes teams, both city staff as well as agency partners who are trained to 
to uh, engage with people and may, and create relationships with people who uh, may have a range of issues, whether they're mental health issues or addictions uh, of various kinds. Uh, there are you know people who have significant uh, challenges, absolutely, and, and the shelter system uh, supports uh, all of that. When they come inside, they get those supports. Uh, from doctors, um, from uh, counselors and, and others to uh, help them with their addictions or uh, medication if, if required for, for a, 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 a mental health uh, condition, for example. So, yes, there's some of that. Um, but again, it's, uh, you know, it, it, these are, these are individuals, uh, people with, uh, who have come from various backgrounds, have, uh, individual kinds of issues, and that's why we work with with people on an individual basis to to find them the right supports that that meet their individual needs. It's not a uh, it, it can never be a one size fits all. Uh, with the assistance that is going on from the city of Toronto, and certainly you see Mayor Tory's commitment to providing uh, longer lasting housing as well. How, how do you see success stories? Do you see people overcome homelessness? Oh, absolutely. We uh, we have a number of success stories. As I was saying, you know, <clears throat> since the start of the pandemic, more than fifty five hundred yes. people uh, in the shelter system. And, and the shelter system, by the way, uh, you know, houses uh, or shelters are about six thousand people a night. So uh, people are are in the shelter system. The vast majority are in the shelter system for a very short period of time until they're housed. Um, and so we, we have uh, a number of programs underway uh, with respect to affordable housing, modular housing. Since December of 2020, uh, we opened, uh, we've opened 244 new affordable and supportive housing homes, um, including 100 modular housing units. Uh, there are 82 projects in, uh, in in the pipeline right now as part of the, the city's affordable uh, rental uh, development housing development pipeline. Uh, that'll create another 10,000 uh, and more, 10,600 uh, new permanent affordable rental homes uh, once they're completed. And over the next year, um, we're aiming to make at least uh, another 1,240 new permanent, uh, permanent and affordable and supportive housing opportunities uh, that will be ready for occupancy. So do, do we see success with, with respect to housing people? Uh, absolutely we do, and, and we will continue to uh, to do that work and uh, and talk about those successes and leverage those successes. And um, it's... Uh, but, um, Apologies for that, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's something that we are very much committed to. You know, housing is the solution to right. homelessness. We all, I think, can agree on that. Uh, and the city is uh, very much, and city council is very much committed to, uh, to 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 ending homelessness with housing. Brad, we will leave it there. Always a pleasure to chat with you. All right, Jane. Thanks so much. Toronto's Chief Communications Officer, Brad Ross. Jane, for Libby, join me tomorrow when we will chat with our strategy panel. Always a spicy conversation. And Bob Comsick is up next with the news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host, 
Jane Brown. Well, hello there. Libby is back on Wednesday. If you've been listening to Zoomer Radio News today, you've heard the story of 11 residents at a Brampton long-term care home who did not receive their medications as prescribed. After an internal investigation, Peel police got involved and have since charged a nurse who worked at Grace Manor long-term care home with 11 counts of failing to provide the necessaries of life. The employee had already been dismissed. As if the situation in long-term care has not looked bleak enough as a result of COVID-19 and its deadly damage. Joining me to discuss this latest development, our Monday Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hello, Zoomer Squad. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. How are everybody? Hi, Jane. Uh, good to talk with you all again. Bill, I will start with you. How could this have happened, especially in light of policy changes after former nurse Elizabeth Wetlaufer went on her killing spree by injecting insulin into patients of long-term care? I mean, that is the first thing we all think of. Well, it is. And it's the first question that uh, comes to all of our minds. How could this happen? What's the supervision that takes place? What's the record-keeping? We understood that when medication is administered, uh, records are kept and somebody supervises those uh, records. How could it go on 11 uh, different times? You know, the, the, the good news, I guess, is that they, they, they caught, uh, this, uh, uh, this indiscretion. The bad news, uh, is how many other times is, is this common? We've been told by some people that it's not unusual for a nurse on their uh, shift to find herself or himself get so busy they leave it to the next shift. Is that what's happening? Where's the supervision? Where's the uh, oversight? Where are these inspectors that we keep hearing about? It raises way more questions than just one about one nurse and, and some incidences. Well, and I want to put that uh, those questions and get your reaction as well. If you have a loved one in long-term care, has medication uh, dispensing been an issue with your loved one? Um, has it been put off, as Bill mentioned, to the next shift? Was there a mistake? Do you have a story that sounds similar to what we're talking about in the news today? Numbers to call, 416. 416- Six three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. David Kravitz, what about you? What are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I share uh, Bill's concerns. I'm particularly in the fact that it's one individual and it's eleven uh, occasions. I suppose if there's any good news here, it was according to the news reports that it was reported by the other staff at the. Uh, home and it was investigated by the management and it was the management who reported it to the police. So there is some, um, you know, local, you know, I, I guess supervision may be late. And I think they, they management also announced they're going to review all their procedures. I don't think this is the kind of incident, uh, that necessarily can make it up all the way up the food chain to the ministry and their inspections because it seems to be very localized and was dealt with locally, but I think it may speak to 
uh, and Bill alluded to this as well, is it overwork? Is it shortage of staff? I don't know what they're failing to provide. It, uh, the news report said charged. So is this under the criminal code? Because if it's a criminal investigation, then it's probably not a you know systemic thing in the whole system. Right. We do. We don't know at this point whether there was any intent or, you know, if the individual was tired, overworked. Peter, we don't know yet any of the details of of the allegations. Yeah, it's a developing story. And, um, you know, it, it will be interesting to hear her in court and, and hear, like, it, was she just a sort of a renegade nurse or whether, you know, the the circumstances that led her to not providing the medication are common throughout nursing homes. So um, it, it's a developing story. It's not a great news story, especially with all the other bad news surrounding uh, long-term care homes and their failure to provide, you know, adequate care during the pandemic. It's a, it's a terrible add-on to that. But um, we really have to wait to the court date to see, to see uh, what she says. Our listeners want to get in on this conversation as well. Let's go to Tony in Keswick. Tony, what would you like to add? Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Enjoy your show. Yeah, my, both my sisters worked in these uh, places, and uh, one especially, she worked in one in West Chill. I ain't going to mention a name unless you want me to. <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, there was such stuff like going on like you wouldn't believe, like stealing uh, some jewelry from people, like staff was doing that. And not to mention... Uh, leaving people in feces for the next shift to do it. And right. this is like they have an hour and a half to kill. And uh, she got a lot of, she was a nutritionist there. She she, she took care of the, the kitchen matter, but she actually ended up changing some people herself because the people just saying, nah, leave for the next shift. There should be some kind of, a, like you have a health inspector, should be some kind of a government inspector going in there, um, you know, without them even knowing it, and, and, and periodically, whatever, like you do a drug test, and go in there and have a look. Um, it's, it's, it's just, it's a lot of stuff going on, which a lot of people, both my sisters retired early because they couldn't take it anymore. Oh, no, I, so. be- I believe it. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for calling in. Um, Bill, you know, we, we heard a lot about, uh, during COVID and after the Elizabeth Wetlaufer, uh, commission that, you know, there were concerns around, uh, how the shift was made up of professionals. You have all kinds of PSWs and one nurse who's dispensing medication. So uh, do we have any more checks and balances in the system? Well, uh, we don't, uh, we don't seem to have. We know there's a huge shortage of, uh, nurses and, uh, and they're, they're, the nurses that are on duty, we're told, are mainly there in a supervisory or, uh, or, or a senior role. And do they have enough time to do their nursing uh, duties? We've doubted that for some time, that there's adequate uh, staffing able to look, look after uh, the necessities of of life of the people that they're looking after. We hear about uh, not having enough to give the kind of daily care that we expect our loved ones to get in uh, long-term care. Now we're hearing an, an incident, as, as, as David and Peter have, have both said, that could well uh, be uh, overwork and, and a case of one, one nurse not having the time to do everything she's being asked for. Right. Uh, and the, so if you if you have two nurses on the same shift, they can check each other's work and make sure that nothing's getting missed. Yeah. You can, but if they if you only have one nurse uh, on the shift, if it's up to the next shift 
to pick up from the from the nursing shift that's that's left, then there's all kinds of opportunities for it to drop between the the cracks. You know, as we talk about this, as Peter said, it's, it's a breaking story. I think we have to be pretty careful about uh, making particular accusations against this one mm-hmm. uh, nurse. This is more of a system uh, problem we're probably uh, seeing here, and an inadequate. Uh, staffing and inadequate support, and it's quite possible that this one nurse just got caught in the middle of a situation that was nothing of her doing. Well, we are speculating, but David, what do you think? I mean, is this woman more likely to be overworked and tired than uh, someone like an Elizabeth Wetlaw? Well, I think there's a very clear distinction. In the case of Elizabeth Wetlaw, where you had criminal intent, you had willful murder, uh, there was no suggestion that she injected all those people because she was, you know, forgetful or overworked. This was a criminal intent to commit murder. And I don't think a system other than the criminal justice system can anticipate all of those things at every level, whether it's in a hospital or a nursing home or a school or anywhere else. Um, in this case, I, I just don't know. But I would want to point out one interesting and disturbing thing, I suppose, is that when you uh, go back to the Morocco Commission, the Commission of Inquiry into the whole problem, they pointed out that the nursing homes as an industry, as a, as a service, fall kind of in between. They're not quite of the Ministry of Health. They're not quite from their own ministry. Uh, they attribute a lot of problems to this kind of neither here nor there uh, existence where conditions were allowed to exist that would never be tolerated, for example, in a hospital, because the hospitals are part of the Ministry of Health and they come under, you know, an act of uh, the legislature and they need to, they need to uh, provide certain levels of service. And long-term care homes are kind of, sort of, in a way, yes, but no. And I think that's part of the problem here is that um, they're not required and they're not staffed uh, at the level that would be uh, insisted upon in hospitals. And so you're left in this kind of limbo land where you're hoping that everything turns out okay, grossly inadequate inspections, only in response to complaints and always in no surprise inspections, no uh, unplanned inspections from the home's point of view. So I think it's this kind of weird hybrid we have that's part of the health system, but not part of the health system, that is very responsible for some of these problems that we're experiencing. Peter, I guess the one heartening element of this is that, according to the CEO of Holland Christian Homes, which uh, is responsible for Grace Manor long-term care, they actually conducted the investigation and went to police. They didn't try to hide what was going on. Yeah, and and there was no... They seem to be fully transparent here, although they're not really commenting on the specifics of the case. But they they seem to be working with police and the government, and uh, and and that's a really good thing because um, you know it it took the military report and it took the auditor's general report and the Morocco Commission to shine a light on these homes. But uh, maybe we're in a new era where these homes will shine a light on themselves, and uh, you know like sort of admit publicly that the problem exists mm-hmm. and uh, 
show the public what they're doing about it. I, I think it's comforting in a way that they uh, they got on top of it, they dealt with it, and they contacted the police. True. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Libby is off today. It's Jane for Libby and the Zoomer Squad, Peter Mugrich, David Kravitz, and Bill Van Gorder. Let's go back to the phones. Marzia in Vaughn, you have a story to share? Yes, I do, and it's a very sad story, too. Mom was in respite in one of the homes that um, the military was in uh, during COVID last year, and um, she did not get her medication. She was there for two days on respite. Uh, she was on respite. Uh, we put her in there for a, a break. My sister needed a break. Um, she was not administered her medication. Um, it was 32 degrees in her room. And um, the window would not open. It would not close. It was always open, but you couldn't open it any further, and you couldn't close it. And uh, for two days, um, Mom was in there, and a friend went to visit her, and she was um, calling for help to, through the friend. The friend called us, and my sister and I darted down there. We were there within seven minutes. And we looked it up, and we uh, talked it over, and my sister and I said, okay, let's leave her there for another day. Uh, Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, I woke up in desperation and I called my sister. I said, we need to go and get mom. Mm-hmm. So we went and we were packing her clothes and we spoke with the head nurse. And we said, could, could we have a list of the medication that she was administered because we, didn't, we, didn't, we don't want to uh, remedicate her? Mm-hmm. She said, we don't have any medication for her. I said, what are you talking about? We gave you a list before she came in. Plus, she was there um, a year before. Uh, from convalescent, and it was the same head nurse that we spoke to, and we had given her a list of medication, and none of her medication was administered for wow. two days. So, Marzia, took- was she was her health affected? I mean, other than uh, the obvious things you pointed out, how did she manage after that? She declined. She went downhill. Um, we had to put her in a uh, nursing home. Uh, she was uh, there for a year and a half, and we lost her this September. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, Bill... She, de- she declined very, very rapidly, and we, we contested. We called the ministry. Uh, they went in. They said they had, was an inspection. Everything was done. But apparently, um, nothing came through. Um, and um, she declined. She declined very, very rapidly. Well, and Marcia, you can imagine for those family members who aren't able to take their loved ones out. I mean, your mom was in this uh, this horrific situation for a matter of days, it sounds like, and, and mm-hmm. she was struggling afterwards. Can you imagine those who are in there for long periods of time? Yes. Um, and what I, another point I would like to make out is we asked why she was not administered her meds. And they said that it was because the doctor put them on hold. It wasn't any of the nurses. It wasn't any of the PSWs. It was the doctor that said that put them on hold and he wanted to uh, reinvestigate. And I thought, well, what's there to investigate? If she's been giving these meds when she was here on convalescence, why are you not able to administer them that she's here on respite? And, and what was the answer to, to your question of why would the doctor do this? He said it was his. It was his. Um, it was his calling, and it was up to him to uh, to decide. Wow. Well, yeah, thank you very tough. much. Thank you for sharing your story. It's it's brave to have to retell difficult details, and we do appreciate it. They're still sending us bills for it. Oh, they are. Are they? Yep. 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 Wow. Yeah. 
Um, well, I'll let uh, our Zoomer squad react to your story again. Thank you for calling in, Bill. Um, when you hear a story like that. Yeah, just uh, just so sad. And our heart goes out uh, to the family that had to deal with that and, and, and the recently departed uh, to know that uh, people can be treated like that, even when their family tries to uh, in- intervene. It's such a sad situation. And, you know, it does bring up uh, another issue, and that's the issue of the uh, the decision-making power that that uh, nurses have or don't have when it comes to, to daily care. CARP has always advocated that it should be a person-centered system where the person, the individual, the resident gets the care that they need when they need it. And when, when decisions are made, being made at a distance, even by an expert like, like a doctor and then, and nurses who are giving the day to day care who aren't right with the patient aren't able to influence those decisions. There's something the matter with the whole system. We need to have the people who are closest to the patients able to make the decisions that are necessary to keep them comfortable when they need to be and not uh, wait days for someone uh, really outside of the personal care picture, making decisions about them. Well, David, that just seems to be hard to believe that a doctor would make that decision and yet not consult with family members first. Well, I think I think it would be very rare. If I go back to my earlier point in a hospital, I mean, I would ask, where's the family doctor who prescribed the meds in the first place? They, uh, her mother was on on a medication. It wasn't like an acute treatment of surgery or some, uh, you know, post-surgical procedure where the, uh, the operating room is making decisions, uh, which, you know, they have to make. This is uh, the families. And the first answer was, well, we, we don't have any meds for her. And then they explained to the doctor, well, doesn't the doctor have to talk to the family and let them know? Doesn't he have to consult with the family? Position, right? Uh, do they do all? Which I so I'm, I'm I'm suggesting here, and I don't know. I don't want to pretend to all levels of procedural expertise that I don't have. But I'm suggesting here that it's loose again. It's not the what you'd expect in a hospital, and it's because this setting falls in in the limbo land of it's medical, it's quasi, it's not really, and that's why you get these communication breakdowns and these breakdowns in treatment. Because they're not, they're, they're a quasi medical facility and they don't really fall under uh, anybody. And along those lines, Peter, we've yet to hear any kind of reaction to this story from the long term care ministry. Yeah, um, I, I suppose they're, they're waiting till the facts are in or they've had a chance to look at the facts. But, um, you know, th- this, I, I think they're going to find this isn't an isolated problem. Like uh, one, of the, um, one of the recommendations, from the wet law for inquiry was that um, nursing homes, long-term care facilities um, ha- had to sort of improve the way they deliver medication and the way they keep records of it. And I know the government recently um, issued grants to these homes um, so they could update their systems and, and sort of, you know, um, purchase new technology that would allow them to keep track of the medications in a more effective manner. So, so perhaps, you know, going forward, this, this might be, let, let's put some more money against it. Let's jumpstart this. Let's get this into all homes so we can avoid uh, 
these cases where the nurses are overworked, the nurses are pushing it off to the next uh, staff, they, they've lost track, the doctors have counter-ordered what the patients need. Um, you know, a, 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 like an effective operating system, effective technology could, could get around that. I want to go back to the phones. If you're just joining us here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, we're talking about the story of a nurse at a Brampton long-term care home charged after a medication incident involving 11 individual residents. Let's go to Wendy in Midland. Wendy, go ahead. Oh, hello, Janet. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. What's your story? I'm a registered nurse, and I've been working for many, many years. I'm still registered, but I am in my 70s. And um, I do uh, nursing assessments in retirement homes for other countries and other countries, other uh, companies, and in um, um, retirement homes and long-term care homes. And I've been finding that more um, individual families are putting cameras in the rooms ah. of, uh, of individual patient service. And uh, it seems like... Uh, you know, the facilities are accepting this, and I don't know if that's a solution to some of the problems. I'm wondering, Bill, does that have to be disclosed? I would think it would be. Oh, if, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, they know. The, yeah. The, oh, I see. The retirement home knows, or the nursing home knows that there's a camera in the room. Right. But there's more, like, there's not a lot of them, but certainly more than there was 10 years ago when I was working Okay. in the same job. Well, thank you for oh, calling just, in. Yeah, you're welcome. I appreciate okay. that insight. Um, Bill, what about that? I mean, more accountability. We all know that wow. smartphones and technology are revealing crimes, right, all the time. Is is this the way to go, more surveillance? Well, it, it, it may be what's going to happen, whether we like it or not. But isn't it sad? Isn't it so terrible to think that we're losing such trust in those facilities where we have uh, we give them the responsibility for looking after our loved ones that we even have to think that we have to uh, follow up this way and supervise and, uh, and 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 be there all the time to make you sure that they're getting the care that we just rightfully expect uh, that they're going to get and I think for the uh, for the long-term care homes uh, uh, the lack of trust uh, that this is all the, the whole, uh, COVID experience as engendered uh, in them is, in, in the long run, going to uh, completely change the the attitudes. We're already uh, hearing even more so of people uh, not wanting to put their uh, uh, their loved ones in long term care because of what they're 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 hearing. So it's going to take tremendous change to regain that uh, trust again. And if putting cameras uh, in 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 the homes to protect your own loved ones is what you have to do. Who can blame any family for wanting to do that? Before we wrap up uh, with our Zoomer Squad final thoughts here uh, on this Monday, June 14th, uh, there's actually, uh, a, just the way it worked out, Bill, uh, a show you're part of tonight on the Zoomer on our sister station, Vision TV at 11, uh, advocating with a panel of experts, yourself included, on the need to put more money in keeping people at home. Exactly. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's right. And that's what's happening. And, and, uh, we know that the answer to many of these questions for many people in the long run 
is how do we make our our homes, our communities, our our home care available so that uh, as many people as possible don't have to go into uh, uh, long-term care uh, facilities that, as David said, are not seem to be able to provide the the care that they they need because uh, they're neither a medical facility mm-hmm. uh, or a residence or somewhere in between, and uh, it's just not being managed well. David, your final thoughts on this segment? Well, I agree with that. I think the cameras are in there primarily to prevent abuse, verbal and physical abuse. I don't think the cameras could record the delivery of meds on time, um, you know, even with a time code on it. Uh, but I think it's a good step. But I think that what Bill said is correct, that we're entitled to expect a certain level. And when it comes to meds, to go back to this story, there's no reason that they mustn't, never mind shouldn't, mustn't be, they must be delivered. There's no reason they mustn't be delivered uh, as expected properly on time. And if the home doesn't have the resources to do that, that should be knowable and disclosable and dealt with the same as if it was a hospital that wasn't giving medication properly. So uh, it needs a fresh look uh, and it needs very aggressive corrective action by the ministry, even though this management may not be culpable, as Peter pointed out, kudos to them for recognizing it and identifying it. But what are they wrestling with that prevents them from uh, delivering the service that people expect? Yeah, good question. And Peter, uh, the final word to you. Yeah, well, I'll be following the the um, outcome of this closely, you know, because it, it's uh, hopefully it's just an isolated incident, but um you know, there there is a potential it could open a can of worms and that, uh, you know, the the evidence raised could show that this is going on in other homes and that, uh, you know, it's just another, another you know, set of problems that the uh, industry has to face down uh, among the many they have. So I'll, I'll be watching the case very closely. Zoomer Squad, I thank you. And uh, Libby, we'll talk with you again next Monday. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Jane. That is Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer Magazine, along with Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer of CARP, and David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president at Zoomer Media. Jane, for Libby, and after the break, have you been to an outdoor patio since Ontario entered step one of the roadmap to reopening plan? We want to hear about your experience. 416 360 0740 or 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.